0: presence of the Lord is in the house today, and you can leave here different than different than you came. Amen. Whatever you have need of, he is here, and he can, and he wants to meet your need. Amen. 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 Our youth class is going to go downstairs for, for class, go with God, be blessed. The Lord's going to minister to you in that environment. The rest of you can take a seat. I have a message to share with you today, but uh, does anybody know what tomorrow is? Labor Day. Labor Day. For many, that means that it's the last good weekend of summer. It's barbecue, it's family time, it's friends over, and backyard games like cornhole. Somebody's going to pull out the cornhole board, I know. Play a little backyard. We used to play lawn darts. I think those have been outlawed. Croquet, whatever your backyard game is. I played croquet in my grandparents' yard a lot when I was a kid. But Labor Day has become this sort of family celebration. If you work in retail, you're probably working tomorrow. It's also a very big sale weekend. But originally, Labor Day was... Created to observe uh, the the many contributions that workers and work has have made to our economy, our culture, our American way. Um, when when you look back, it was first observed nationally in 1894. I know I'm a history nerd. It's okay. You'll make it. You'll survive. The second industrial revolution lasted between 1850 and 1914 and working conditions. How many of you would want to work in a factory in like 1905? No way. 12-hour days. Six days a week. That is uncomfortable, to say the least. No safety, very few safety restrictions or guidelines that employers had to follow to make you safe in the workplace. That is not kind of workplace that I want to work in. I don't want to show up wondering if I'm going to lose a finger or a thumb or a limb or see my buddy uh, fall into something that could kill him because there's no safety net or safety hazard uh, gear. Labor Day and the, the, the work being done to celebrate Labor Day was kind of a, kind of a big deal. And it impacts every single one of us that works outside of the home in today's world. It's had a lasting effect. So I'm grateful for the people who sort of pioneered uh, an understanding that workers do matter. Workers matter. The Bible actually gives instruction to masters and those who uh, are overseers in their workplace to be fair to the people that they work with. And it's an important value. But I'm I'm thankful that the discomfort suffered by many led to changes being made that impact me today. Discomfort and suffering (laughs) motivate us to change things. And so today I want to talk to you about the gift of discomfort. And Brother Jake, a few weeks back, you did such a great job. Uh, sitting during a demonstration that Brother Brian did. So I'd like you to come down. I actually have a a job. I'd like you to sit today as well, if you would. I have the perfect chair for you. It's right here. If you would just take a seat and make yourself comfortable, if you would. You good? Good. Okay. All right. All right. So, I want to talk about the gift of discomfort. Now, brother Nathan, your job today is to count how many times he changes position. Okay? All right. Once already, Sister Andrea said. There's a lot of sh- there's a lot of shifting. Why is that? Are you, are you saying that being uncomfortable makes you want to move to a more comfortable position? The hope of comfortability helps me to, forces me to move into a different position. The hope of comfort. Wow. Wow. So you, do you feel then compelled to move? I feel extremely compelled, Yes. And so you're kind of shifting from one side to another, hoping in hope that something will make you more comfortable. Exactly, yes. Okay, so you're moving because you're compelled to change by the discomfort that you're feeling. Yes, the, the hope of the one side versus the other side, and also to alleviate the pain from the other side. So. <laughs> I know Brother Brian gave you a nice cushy chair. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, do you think this chair ever fit you? Uh, yes, at one point, I think I was this small to be comforted in this chair. Yes, but not in many, many years. Ma- maybe, maybe a few years ago? Maybe a few <laughs> Two, three, or four. Two, three, or four years. Thank you. That's all I needed. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'm not going <laughs> to make you sit there forever. So, at some point, this chair fit Brother Jake. Maybe when he was three or four years old, and it would have been pretty comfortable at that point. But he outgrew it. And sitting in a chair that he had outgrown was uncomfortable. I wanna talk about the gift of discomfort. When we are small, we are born into this world with something that is meant to make us uncomfortable, it's an innate gift something that God created us all with, and it's called a conscience. Your conscience is meant to make you uncomfortable when you make bad decisions. You ever seen a little squirmy kid get corrected? They know they did wrong. They know that mom or dad set a rule and they didn't follow it. and It's, it's not even mom or dad that's talking to them so much as they're squirming before they even have the conversation because they know, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. Or, I should have done that. I should have done my chores. I didn't do my chores. Now I'm squirming and miserable before I ever have the conversation with my parents. Why? Because my inside conscience, that inner original equipment voice that God put in us to say, this is right and this is wrong, Ah, it gets us, makes us squirm on the inside, it makes our flesh uncomfortable. Conscience. Now, for those of you who take notes and are OCD like me, I'm just a little bit. I'm just a little bit. Um, all of these are going to start with a C. So that is my gift to you today. You're welcome. Uh, conscience is this one of the first sources of discomfort for our flesh to encounter. And since everybody's born with it, it it's not necessarily something that uh, is from the Spirit of God directly. It's a gift from God at creation. So it comes as equipment in your flesh. Now, conscience tells us, or the Bible tells us several things about conscience. Uh, Romans two fourteen and 15 says that, when the Gentiles or, or people who are outside of covenant during the, the early New Testament, the Gentiles who do not have the law, they were not given the law, they're a law to themselves and they show the work of the law written in their hearts because their conscience is also bearing witness that, and their thoughts become the mean that they use to accuse or excuse other people. What's inside their own mind And their own self becomes a law unto them, their conscience guiding them. It's it's original equipment. Everybody gets it. And the Bible tells us that because it is in us, it encourages us to align to the nature of our creator. It's a little bit of God putting his nature in us to say this is right, this is wrong. This is what I should do. This is what I shouldn't do. So the Bible tells us that it's even those who don't yet know God have this inner voice. And Titus 1.15 tells us that our conscience can be defiled. It says, unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and faithless or unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and their conscience is defiled. So, yeah, we're, we're all given this little gift of discomfort inside of us that can make us uncomfortable when we do the wrong thing called a conscience. This little gift inside of us can then, by the act of our living impurely, in a defiled way, we can defile our conscience. We can make it kind of used to all the dirt of the world. We can get it dirty. That's what defile means. We, we can get it dirty. Thank God, the Bible also tells us that a conscience can be made good or made clear. First Peter 3.21 says, it's talking about baptism and uh, uh, an analogy of baptism to what Noah and the flood were to the earth, this cleansing. It's a the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. You're not going into the baptismal tank to take a bath. Clean up your skin. That's not what this is for. It's not about the outer washing. It's the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through baptism. Through submission to the overall plan of salvation. Can't get to baptism unless you repent. And it's... Identifying with the resurrection of Jesus Christ that fills us with the Holy Ghost. So it's this whole process that leaves us with an answer of a good conscience toward God. Got a clear conscience. Man, you sleep good on those days. There's no sleep like that sleep after you're, you get baptized. And then you get filled with the Holy Ghost. Man, got an answer of a good conscience toward God. Then the Bible also tells us that this little tool of discomfort called conscience can also be seared. Or it can be made insensate, unable to feel. If you look at 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, it says, The Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to a seducing spirit. And to doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their consciences seared with a hot iron. Now, I don't know if you've ever burned yourself badly, but when that burn heals, that that place really has very little feeling left. You've burned the ends of the nerves. Now, this is talking about those who depart from the faith, he's not talking about unbelievers having their consciences seared. He's talking about believers who then walk away from their faith, going on to then also have their consciences seared by the life that they've given themselves over to, the seducing spirits and the doctrines of devils and the hypocrisy. This is kind of an illustration of the progression of three different kinds of minds that the Bible talks about. The first is the unregenerated mind have never known God. These are people who live by their conscience until or unless their conscience becomes defiled. The unregenerated mind has not been made a new creation by an an encounter and a submission to the life of Jesus Christ. It's really hard to be a good person as an unregenerated person. You're making all of those good decisions out of your own strength, your own ability. And for those of us who have tried that, it's hard. The flesh fights you. The flesh doesn't want to be uncomfortable. And so it wiggles and squirms until it finds a place of comfort. Usually in something that's too immature for its current stage of living. The unregenerated mind lives by conscience and is often living in this world. It's very easy for that conscience to become defiled by impure and faithless living. So the unregenerated mind is one kind of mind in the Bible. The regenerated mind is the second type. This is when we come to know the Lord. All things are made new. Behold, all things become new. We can be regenerated. We can be recreated in his image. We can be made holy and made righteous and made like him, and we identify with the burial, the, the, the I'm sorry, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ through our repentance and our baptism in Jesus' name, being filled with the Holy Ghost and going on to live a discipled life where we're following after him and day by day he's creating his image in us and we're working hard to live up to the measure of the man, Christ Jesus. This is the regenerated mind where my mission in life is now to become like Jesus Christ. The third mind that the Bible talks about is the carnal mind. Sinners who have never known God are not carnal. They're unregenerated. Christians who choose to go back to the ways of the world and the ways of the flesh become carnal. And So when the Bible talks to us about carnality, he's not, the, the scripture is not telling us about sinners who've never known the Lord. He's speaking to Christians who in one way or another have let some of those things of faith slip. And we're being led by the flesh and not by the spirit. So I want you to keep in mind, we're, we're talking about discomfort, but we're dealing with how discomfort affects different kinds of minds. An unregenerated mind is exposed to conscience that could be defiled or impure. A regenerated mind has conscience available to it, but it's the conscience of an answer of pure conscience toward God. It's an answer of a conscience that's pure and clean and good before God. That's, an unre- that's a regenerated mind. And then there is this carnal mind where once we start going down that road of carnality, we're really on the street toward having our conscience seared and being insensitive to the word and spirit of God. We've got to be careful what direction we're going. We don't have to look very far to imagine a world where everyone just kind of lives by their conscience, even if it's defiled. That's not a world that we want to live in. And so many of us come into church because it's a safe haven from a world that is controlled by Defiled consciences, people with defiled consciences. Our conscience should make us uncomfortable when we do what is wrong. Now, the world that is heavily influenced by those with defiled consciences will say, do what feels good to you. Just follow your heart. That is not scripture. That is the opposite of scripture. We should not be guided by these uh, uh, the, by, by our flesh or by our uh, natural selves. We want to be guided by what is objectively, absolutely right or wrong. I welcome the, the gift of discomfort from my conscience. That thing that wakes you up in the middle of the night saying, mm, I think I accidentally lied to so-and-so. I misrepresented. i got to fix that. I don't even remember what it was, Pastor, but I remember I remember there was a time not long ago that I I felt I had misrepresented something. And it was like a month later, and it was eating at me. It was just irritating me. I was uncomfortable with it. And I went to him, and I said, I think I might have said this wrong. I didn't mean to say it this way. It just came out this way. He said, oh, sister, don't worry about it. It happens to all of us, you know. But I'm thankful for that little gift of discomfort. And, yeah, it was uncomfortable to have that conversation. You made it a lot more comfortable just by being welcoming and forgiving and easy and quick to forgive. But at the same time, that conscience should call things out to us when we do something or say something or think something or entertain something that we ought not. It's the gift of discomfort of conscience. The second thing is closely related But it's the gift of conviction. Where where conscience is innate in us, it's something, it's part of who we are. It's something God gifted us with from birth. Conviction is an act of the Spirit and the Word of God coming to challenge our behavior and our words and our actions and make us more like Him. Conviction comes to prompt us to change. Conviction comes when the word of God is spoken or we pick it up and we read the word of God and we can see I don't line up somewhere. There's something that I need to do. There's something that I need to be. There's something that I need to fix. And so the conviction of the word and the spirit of God comes to help us change. Now, this is not condemnation. Condemnation is... You're such a horrible person. You're never going to get it right. I can't believe you would even try to be a Christian. That's condemnation. And that's from the enemy. That's not from God. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Right? You're in Christ Jesus. What we should be listening for is that conviction that comes with the inspiration and power to change. Conviction doesn't say, you're guilty and you'll never get better. Conviction says, you did something, you're guilty, and here's how to fix it. It calls out the problem, but it also provides the solution both in, in a means to improve and the power to do so. The Spirit of God enabling us to change. In uh, There's an illustration of this in in. The book of Acts, we, you know, the word "convictions" not really our, our our English word "convictions" not super prominent in the King James version, but it uses words like they were pricked in their hearts. They were oh, they felt a sting or an internal uh, like a like a needle prick in their hearts. Acts chapter 2, we see an example of this. The Jewish believers who had gathered from every nation to, to celebrate in Jerusalem, they hear all these newly apostolic people speaking in tongues, having had this Pentecostal experience of being filled with the Holy Ghost, and they're spilling out in the streets, and they're speaking in a language that others can understand. There are people from all over the world are hearing these new believers glorify God in their own languages. And in in that it got their attention, and Peter begins to preach the first sermon of this newly founded apostolic church. And he says, "Look, from the beginning, all the way through the Old Testament, I'm going to connect all the dots of the prophets and help you understand exactly what has just happened. That you killed the Lord Jesus, who was sent to be Messiah, and it's through His death that you're able to connect with Him." And it blew their minds. And in Acts chapter 2, it says they were pricked in their hearts. They were convicted. Why? Because the word of God went forth with power. The spirit of God was accompanying and already moving. And this external force of conviction smote them in their hearts. And they said, what shall we do? How do we fix it? I feel the conviction. What's the tool that I need to fix it? That should be our response to conviction. God, I know I messed up. How? How do I fix it? What shall we do? And we know Peter's response. Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or the removal of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The plan of salvation was given on that day because people felt uncomfortable with the truth. They felt uncomfortable because conviction was given to them. And this gift of discomfort challenged them. Now, I'll tell you, if you've stood on this pulpit, you have watched as people have responded differently to the word of God. Some people, the word and the spirit go forth, and they run to the altar, and they're ready to make a change in their life. And they're looking for how to fix the problem. And I have watched many others. I'm not looking at anybody in particular. Or thinking of anybody in particular. But I've watched from the pulpit as people have squirmed. Kind of like Brother Jacob here. They squirm. Why? Because conviction is making them uncomfortable. And the, the response of the flesh is always the same. To try to seek a place to be comfortable. To resist discomfort. The flesh will always lead us toward comfort, whereas the Spirit can draw us headlong into challenging discomfort so that our flesh becomes submitted to the Spirit, and the Spirit in you can be comfortable at the cost of your flesh. That's why the flesh has to die. Not in the natural sense, but in the in the spiritual sense. It can't be in control. That's what makes us carnal, is if we've come to faith and we allow the flesh to rise up again and be in control. So how do we respond to conviction? You know, I, this is an older older video that used to be online, but there was a video of a little kid, and you might be able to still search it and find it, but his mom is correcting him, and she's confronting him about a situation, and he's sitting there going, listen, Linda, 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 listen. You're not listening. Listen, and he's explaining himself, and he's challenging his mother, and it went around because it was kind of cute that this little kid... Listen, Linda, but it's not cute when someone stands up and says, listen, Jesus, that's not how I want to do things. Stop making me uncomfortable with the things that my flesh craves. That's not cute. why it's it's the goodness of God that brings us to repentance conviction comes from the goodness of God discomfort in our fleshly nature is a gift that comes from the goodness of God how do i respond to conviction Do I try to rationalize and try to figure out how I can avoid yielding, justify my actions? Or do I say, you know what? I'm going to offer myself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is just my reasonable service. How do I respond? when i get the squirmies because conviction is on me you know if we if we find ourselves out of alignment with the word of god i pray that i never stop being uncomfortable with that god don't ever let me get comfortable being out of your will and out of alignment at that point, I'm, I'm well on my way to having a conscience that's been seared and is unfeeling toward God. The third gift of discomfort does not sound like a gift at all. And when the Lord dropped this one in my heart, I was like, listen, Linda. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. I just said that to be funny. No. Chastisements is a gift. You know it. You parents know it when you chastise your children. You're gifting them with instruction for the rest of their lives, knowing that it is not a comfortable experience. Now, I'm not a parent. Please nobody get mad at me, but I'm pretty sure that a lot of our What we call chastisement probably is not as uncomfortable as it should be today. Chastisement. You know, a lot of times it doesn't feel good to our flesh to be corrected, instructed, given information that will help us over time, told what we did wrong. Whew! We're in a world where it's like, nobody wants to be told. Nobody wants to be taught, instructed. Unregenerate minds resist chastisement. But sometimes it's necessary. And what I've found in my own experience is a lot of times it's not God punishing me. You know, punishment, there's a little bit of a nuance here between punishment and chastisement. Punishment... Is make it's adding an adverse situation, almost for the sake of the pain. I hope you don't punish your children. I hope you chastise them, give them needed correction and instruction, to help them along the way. Punishment is inflicting pain for its own sake. In fact, Hebrews twelve talks about this. Hebrews. 12, 4 through 7 says you you have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. You know, you think you've been really beaten up, but really you haven't striven to the point that you're bleeding in, in this battle against sin. And you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as unto children. My son, Despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For who the Lord loves, he chastens. And he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with children. As with his own kids. You find a dad who doesn't chasten his kids. You find a dad who doesn't love his children. He doesn't love them enough to give them instruction. And to help them learn there are right ways and wrong ways to do things. There are right ways and wrong ways to treat people. A good father will give instruction for the the duration of life. It's not just to apply to today. It's for the rest of your life. You need to know these things. Chastening. What son is he whom the father chastens not? Now, I didn't include it because the King James language gets a little interesting. But the next verse says, look, if you're not chastened, you're not a legitimate kid. Father doesn't even care about you if you're not chastened. He chastens the kids because he loves them. Now, we have a hard time thinking about this. I think our modern world has tried to paint all sorts of chastening as, as abuse. But I, I see coaches do this chastening quite a bit. You, you know the, the ones where they're in the locker room, they're reading them the riot act. You left this gap open on the field, and if you would have just done this, it would have been better, and you didn't follow the play like we practiced, and get out there and run me two more miles. You know what that is? That's natural consequences. That's going to help. It's, it's not a pointless punishment, It's a chastisement that's actually going to help equip them to be better players in the future. Why? Because they're getting in two more miles of physical activity. It's going to help. I'm not kidding. When I was in high school, we used to our coaches used to send people to do stadiums. How many of you know what stadiums are? You're running up the stairs on the side on the on the the what do they call them bleachers? You're running up the stairs. Across the top, Gavin's giving me the thumbs down, and then down the stairs, across the bottom, and up the stairs, those are stadiums. Why? To punish them? Well, no. To equip them to do better in the future. Now, there are extremities that we should not go to in chastising, where it leaps from being a helpful and useful tool to being abuse. We don't encourage abuse at this church. Not at all. Not anywhere close. But God does chastise us often with natural consequences based on our decisions. Sometimes he will let the natural consequences of my poor decisions hit me in the face. And it's a wake-up call. And it chastises me. But most of the time, chastisement comes through verbal correction. Instruction in righteousness. Chastisement makes me uncomfortable. But when the Word of God is given from men and women standing at this pulpit, it calls us out from our sin, it corrects us, it directs us to the right path. It's a gift. It's a gift. The writer of Hebrews says, you know, earthly fathers, they discipline according to what they want you to do. It's according to their will. So sometimes it's random stuff. They just don't like it done that way, so they want you to do it this way. And so they chasten you to get you to do it their way. God is not like that. God is not chastening you like that. He is trying to get it for your good. He's trying to help you toward your best. I know the plans I have for you, he told Israel. And if his plans for Israel were for their good and not for their evil, I can, I can apply that principle in my life that his plans for me are for my good and not for my evil. So when the gift of chastisement comes, whew, it goes a lot faster and easier if I just endure it and don't resist. Amen. The fourth gift of discomfort is constraint. Constraint. Now, this is different from conviction. Conviction comes to help us uh, not do wrong or to do what is right, what we know is right. Constraint comes, can sometimes come to actually keep you from doing a good thing that's out of time, out of season, out of the will of God. What? What? Good things. God can constrain us from doing good things? Yeah. Because he has a will that's perfect for your life. And there are things that might attract you and attract your attention, even attract your burden, that aren't meant for you or that are out of season for you. Now, I don't particularly see anything wrong. You can think what you want, but when when a parent, you know, has their kid have a snack, I don't see anything wrong with a bag of potato chips or some fruit snacks or whatever. But that same parent will then turn around and say, you're not going to have those potato chips right now because we're going to have dinner in 20 minutes and you're going to spoil your appetite. It's a good thing. It's a delicious thing. But it's out of time and out of season. Where they say, no, you can't go down the street to Sarah's house because I haven't had a chance to meet her parents yet and I don't know what atmosphere you're walking into. Constraint. It's a limitation or a restriction that's placed on that child for a period of time for a purpose. Now, when, when I have the time to go down and meet Sarah's parents, that might be a perfectly wonderful place for you to go down and visit but haven't had that chance yet, so No. Or, yes, you do have to clean up your room. See all these wrappers from the potato chips and the fruit snacks you were eating earlier? That's going to attract bugs. So I'm constraining you to do that good thing because if you don't, there are going to be problems down the road. Understand, I'm not talking about right and wrong and sins. I'm talking about there's a time and a season to do good things. And there are reasons why God will instruct us to do things that may not be against, or, or that may, may um, that he'll instruct us not to do things that may uh, not be sin. Got too many negatives in there. I want to make sure I said that right. <laughs> he'll give us instructions because there's purpose. It might not have anything to do with sinful behavior. But there's purpose to what he's asking us to do. Constraint is a limitation or a restriction of behavior. It's different than conscience. It's different than conviction. In Acts 16, verses 6 through 7, Paul and Silas and some other companions in Christ are traveling on a missionary journey. And the Spirit of God leads them to some places. But then it says it prevents him from going into Asia and a place called Bithynia. Wait. Jesus said, go ye into all the world. So why does the spirit say, nope, don't go there? They started to go to Asia, and the spirit said, nope. Asia being Asia Minor in the Turkey, area of Turkey today. And they started to turn and go to Bithynia, and the spirit said, nope. But God, I'm trying to do your will. I'm trying to do good stuff. You're constraining me from good things. Why? Be- probably because it was out of season. The Bible doesn't give us clear explanation. And here's, here's a hot tip. Jesus doesn't owe you an explanation. When he says no, he didn't give, he didn't give Paul one that we have in Scripture. But what we do find is that in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter sends his book to believers scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter was already doing the work. And the Lord says, I don't need you over there because I got somebody on the ground over there. You go over here. And he sent him to Macedonia. The Lord knows. And it might seem like a good thing to you. It might even be a burden that you feel in your spirit. But if the timing and the place and the will of God are not all lined up, you don't want to be there. The safest place, the best place to be is right in the will of God. Peter... Uh, was constrained to do a good thing in going to Asia and Bithynia and some other places that he visited. Um, Paul was sent elsewhere, but Peter was constrained to do that good thing. And we can also be constrained to do things that might not be quite the way that we want to do them. Good works. But maybe it's against our own will. And the greatest example that we have of this is Jesus In Luke 9, 51, Jesus steadfastly sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, he knew he'd be put to death. He knew everything that was coming to him. And he sat in a garden, knelt in a garden and said, This is not my will. My flesh does not want to do this, but nevertheless, I'm constrained. Nevertheless, not my will, but the will of the Spirit be done, not my will, but thine We can be constrained to do a good thing that's not aligned to our will. Can God constrain you? You personally, if God said, no, don't go do that good thing. Or yes, go do that good thing that you really don't want to do. Can God... Does he have that authority in your life to constrain you? Constraint is an uncomfortable position. Have you ever been constrained by anything? I, I think about sitting in the middle seat of a plane and between I, this happened to me when I flew I flew uh, in or out of Tampa this last time. and I was sitting between two gentlemen who were taller than me. I'm pretty tall. I've got broad shoulders. They had broad shoulders. And we were all angled just a little bit to make it bearable. I was constrained. They were even more constrained. (laughs) And you're kind of afraid to move because you don't want to, you know, offend your neighbor. But God can and does constrain us. In fact, Paul talked about being And none of us are going to like this word, but the prisoner of Christ. Prisoners are constrained. They're limited. They're restricted to a specific area. And in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul starts that chapter off saying, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling wherewith you are called. With all lowliness. Ooh, lowliness is a constraint. Meekness. Meekness is power that is under constraint. Having the ability to do something and choosing not to. Meekness. Long suffering. Ooh, patience will constrain you. Forbearing one another in love. I'm going to put up with my brothers and sisters because I'm constrained, I'm a prisoner. Of the Lord? Oh, don't look at me like you don't think that sometimes. I'm constrained. Constrained by the Spirit of the Lord. Because I'm endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I'm constrained to do this good thing that sometimes goes against the flesh. My carnal self could easily stand up and say, nope. Listen, Linda. But I'm standing here in lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, trying my best to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith I am called because I'm endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I'm constrained. Fifth one, last one. And I've talked about this a little bit. These first four will make our flesh uncomfortable, our conscience, conviction, chastisement, and constraint. The spirit makes us uncomfortable. This last one is when we take on the role of making the spirit in us uncomfortable. This last one is carnality. Carnality will make the flesh comfortable and the spirit uncomfortable. And it's a risk for any Christian. Romans 8 verse 5, Paul lays it out pretty, pretty clearly. For those who are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh but they that are after the Spirit mind the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, spiritual death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The carnal mind is enmity or hatred against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither can it be. Your carnality cannot be subject to the law of God. My carnality, my carnal self that is at one point had been regenerated and has given itself back to the fleshly ways, I cannot submit that carnal self to the laws of God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you regenerated believers who have not gone into that place of carnality. You are not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. If so, be that the spirit of God dwell in you. If any man have not the spirit of Christ, he's unregenerated. He's none of his. But you have the spirit. So God's calling you not to let carnality try to make your flesh so comfortable that the spirit of God in you wars. It's a gift. It's a gift that the spirit wars against the carnal flesh. Why? Why? I heard a, I don't know if you, did you hear the podcast with the kingdom speaker talking with the missionary from Brazil? This missionary, long time missionary from Brazil, and he starts off the podcast saying, I, I just want to be saved. I just want to be close to Jesus. I just want to have a relationship with him that's open and free and without hesitation. I just want to be saved. I just want to make it to heaven. Why? Because the dangers of carnality, the longer you're in the church, the more carnality rears its ugly head. And you see the dangers of it very clearly and how easy it is for us to give ourselves over to the flesh and to get out of walking with the Spirit and in the Spirit and start walking in the flesh. He says, look, I know it's going to be a narrow escape for me. I just want to be saved. Carnality dislikes discomfort, like Brother Jake was compelled to try to find a more comfortable way to experience that little chair. Carnality will fight you to get you to stay comfortable in the flesh. And it's only the pursuit of the Spirit, the submission to the Spirit, that will keep carnality On the altar. You feed the flesh. The spirit will suffer. If I feed the spirit. And the things of the spirit. The flesh will have to die. To make room for what God is doing. The spiritually minded person. Can have life and peace. Once we've put the self. On the altar. Would you stand with me. Carnality enjoys jumping the fences of constraint and dodging the darts of conviction, trying not to change. Carnality simply prays, let this cup pass with no, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. See, the carnal self is familiar with the scripture and it's always looking for loopholes. It asks questions like Will I go to heaven if I do this? Can I still do this and go to heaven? That is not your regenerated mind asking that. That is your carnality asking that. How comfortable can I make the flesh without also going to hell? The gift of discomfort. The gift of discomfort. Would you close your eyes with me? I really hope that you're uncomfortable today. Not because of the temperature or the comfort of your chair or anything about this room. But I hope you've been able to see something in this message that makes you realize what I've really been wrestling with and this irritability that I've had and the struggle that I've been facing and the squirminess my response to a message like this is really about God trying to draw me closer to him and my flesh resisting once you've recognized that you can find the fix once you know that your struggle is really against drawing closer to God you can choose to stop resisting is your conscience clear do you have the answer of a good conscience toward God if not, today's your day. You can submit to the plan of salvation. You can turn your life around, repent, ask God to help you. Tell Him that you don't want to live the way you've been living. Turn your life around and be baptized in Jesus' name so that you can have the answer of a good conscience toward God. And Peter said, the Lord will fill you with the Holy Ghost if those are the steps that you choose to take. Does your conscience clear? Is God convicting you with His Word and His Spirit to change? Is there something that's out of alignment? Is there sin in our lives that we need to get right with Him? Conviction is a gift. Is He convicting you today? Have you been chastened? under the hand of God, corrected, given instruction. Don't resist what God's trying to do. He's trying to teach you, help you for the future. He's giving you instruction. Today could be your place of refreshing when you yield to the chastening of the Lord. Are you feeling constrained because you want to do a good thing and the timing and the season have shifted and that good thing is not what God wants for this moment? Is there a desire in your heart to minister, to make a difference in some area and God's saying, Not yet, son. Not right now, my daughter. Not there. Or he's saying, you know what? I got a project for you. And I know your flesh is not going to like it. I know you're not going to be comfortable. But this is right where I want you to serve. It's going to protect you. It's going to create something in you for the future. Maybe, just maybe, you've been Wrestling with this carnal nature, this old self. And your carnality is uncomfortable with the conviction that's coming at it, but your spirit is uncomfortable with carnality in your life. And the spirit that God put in you is challenging you. Hey, get rid of this stuff. You don't need this old self running your life. Let Let the Spirit lead you. Let the Spirit of God lead you. Let the Word of God shape you. Put that carnality in the grave and live, walk in the Spirit. What's making you uncomfortable today? This space up in the front is open if you would like to come and pray. I believe that God wants to meet you and he wants to make you so uncomfortable that you're driven to change. That you become more like him. That you seek him. That you want to run after him. That you give yourself more to the word and the study of his scriptures. And that you give yourself more to what God wants to grow and develop in your life. Why don't you come up with us and get uncomfortable? God, challenge me. Don't let me be unfeeling toward what you want to do, Lord. Don't let me resist you in any way, God. No resistance. Whatever it takes, God, I want to be more like you, Jesus. Whatever I have to lay down, Lord God, whatever discomfort I have to endure, Lord Jesus, help me, God, to run into it. Help me to embrace it, God. Help me, Lord, to become very uncomfortable with things that don't belong in my life. And help me to change. Help me to be compelled to change, Lord Jesus. Whatever, whatever it takes, Lord Jesus, whatever it takes.